Alright, last week we started studying Christian evidences and I gave just more or less an overall view of the subject itself. And what I've done tonight is, is put some of this so that we can look at it on an overhead projector and we'll go back and look at some of the things we did last week. But if you want to make notes, or at least I think just seeing it up here will help you fix it in your mind. And remember, the, the reason when we study this way is, is twofold. Uh, everybody here tonight is a believer. And so we want to, not only if, if you learn something you don't already know, fine, that's, that's what we hope. If you already know it, that your, your reason ought to be to, to try to get it in your mind so you can articulate it to someone else. In fact, from a Christian standpoint, as we try to reach others, I don't care how much you intuitively understand on your own, you can't really benefit the cause of Christianity unless you can articulate it uh, in an intelligent and, and reasonable way to someone else. And I really believe that Christians as a whole have somewhat fell down there. They've been content just simply to listen and to study and to have this intuitive understanding where they know and everything like that. But if we're going to reach others, that we need to be able to articulate and, and reason with them on these matters. Now, in looking at, let's see, the New Testament or, or really any, any work of history in the way you would evaluate it, we noted that there's two types of criticism involved. Uh, something we call higher criticism and then lower criticism. Now, higher criticism means the, let me see if I can put that up just a little, means the looking at the work from the standpoint of determining who the author is, if that's possible, and by the way, that's not always essential, who the exact author is, but you work to try to find out who the author of the work is, the historical facts that are involved, in other words, that if it's a work of history, it contains facts, higher criticism would be concerned uh, with the examination of all of these various facts that are involved in the history. A higher criticism is also involved in an examination of the language itself. Let me give you an example on that and how important it is in, in many ways. Languages are, are living. Uh, like, for example, in the, the English language, the English we speak today resembles very little, uh, when you hear it, the language of Chaucer in 1380. Uh, in college, if you've already had some required reading where they told you to go back and do some reading on Chaucer, you probably found that it was like reading a foreign language. At least that was my experience, and yet that was the English of the 1380s. And you can follow the English language from then all the way up to the present, and see this evolution of the language itself. Uh, there's a difference between the King James Bible that was translated in 1611 and a newer translation that you would translate now. In fact, a lot of people don't realize it, but uh, those that use the King James Bible today, they are not using the original King James Bible of 1611. Uh, up until the new King James Bible that came out in recent years, there had been five revisions of the King James. They just kept calling it the King James Bible. And so what they actually have is the fifth revision of the King James Bible. And, of course, each time they bring the language itself up to date. Uh, some of the words, for example, in the, in the King James Bible have uh, totally reversed uh, their meaning. For example, the word hinder, or I should say the word, the word suffer, means actually to permit. Anytime you read the word, the word suffer there, it means literally to permit something. 
uh, the word charity meant love, whereas it, it doesn't in its, its complete sense now. There, are, there were the statements of these and thou's that we don't even use today, and a number of other words that they had that are not part of our language, and we have any number of new words that they did not have in the language then. So the higher critic would look at the language itself. In other words, uh, when we looked at a, a look at a Greek manuscript of the New Testament, uh, a Greek scholar can look at that manuscript and by the nature of the Greek itself, by the syntax, the spelling of the words, the way it's put down, uh, he can do an extremely good job of telling you when that manuscript was, was copied. Uh, just like an English scholar today can read a sample of English writing uh, going all the way back through the years and just do an outstanding job of pinpointing and telling you when that particular piece was written by just simply studying the language itself. Uh, you do this in a similar way that uh, uh, you can listen to an individual talk and there are certain things about his speech and vocabulary that will cause you to pinpoint that person is in the Northeast, the Midwest, uh, the Far West, or the Southeast, just based on the language of that individual. And in the same vein, all language has its characteristics. So the higher critic is concerned about the authorship, he's concerned about all of the historical facts that are involved, he's concerned about the language itself, he's concerned about the relationship to other sources. In other words, that uh, if these events happened in history, then the question is, were there other sources that also dealt with these events in any way? In other words, they wouldn't even have to deal with a specific event. For example, if you read in the New Testament that there was a famine in the days of Claudius when he was uh, the Caesar of Rome. And so here you are reading that in the book of Acts, and you wonder, well, uh, did this fellow really exist? Was he a Caesar at that time? Was there really a famine at this particular time? Well, the higher critic would be concerned by, in going back and checking that out and see if they could identify that particular Caesar and if indeed there was a famine at that time. When you read about uh, John the Baptist coming on the scene, when Tiberius was the Caesar and when Pontius Pilate was in his position and it names these other characters, the higher critic would be concerned with taking this material and finding out if these characters actually lived and is there anything else about them. And for example, when you read about Herod uh, taking the lives of the infants, remember when uh, Jesus was born? And then you have Herod trying to uh, exterminate the children in that area, two years old and under, trying to get to Christ. Well, even if that event is not there, uh, do, do the historians say anything about the personality of that particular Herod? In other words, what they write about his personality, is it consistent with what you see of the Herod in the Bible? Uh, do the historians say anything about Pilate? And what they say about his personality and his characteristics, uh, uh, his marriage, whatever, is it consistent with what you find in the Bible? Well, the higher critic is concerned with all of these, and these people perform an invaluable service. Uh, if you're dealing with something that is really historical fact, you should have no fear whatsoever. And if it's not fact, you ought to want it to be exposed. All right, the lower criticism involves a reconstruction of the original text and then the transmission of that text. In other words, can we reconstruct the New Testament or the Old Testament to the extent that you can be sure that you have what they actually penned at that particular time? And then can you show 
then it's been transmitted accurately down through the years. We mentioned last week that uh, a scholar might stand up and say there are 200,000 mistakes uh, within the New Testament, and there's no original. Well, he's telling you the truth. Uh, if, if you want to stop right there, uh, before we go any further, that uh, there are 200,000 plus mistakes, and you have no original document uh, of the New Testament itself. Well, what does this mean? The lower critic is concerned about this. And what, it, what all is involved in, in that subject. Alright, here on the subject of the lower critic, lower criticism, or textual criticism, uh, textual really is, it would be the accurate statement of what's involved. I just use the term lower because if you do any reading in other books, you're going to run into that word. And it's, it's good to know exactly what they are talking about. When it comes to the manuscripts that we take our New Testament from, we have some 24,000 parts and complete going back to 250 A.D. Okay, now a manuscript is a direct word-by-word -word copy of a letter. In other words, Paul writes this letter to Corinth uh, in Greek, and a manuscript is taking his letter and copying it directly. Okay, we have some 24,000 completer part that go back to that particular time in history. Now, among those, there is four that we consider our main manuscripts. In other words, we have four absolutely outstanding manuscripts, and these become extremely important in the translation of the Bible. Uh, you, it's interesting, as important as they are, you can do it without them, but they're very important. Uh, one criticism that you'll find or maybe a better way of saying it, uh, one comment uh, in favor of some of the uh, modern translations like the NIV as opposed to the King James that you'll read is that when the King James translators uh, translated uh, the text in 1611, they did not have access to what we consider our four best manuscripts. One of them, for example, is the manuscript that is found in the Vatican, and they simply did not have access to that. A version is a translation from one language to another. And so the King James Version is a translation of the New Testament from Greek into English. The Cyrenic Version is a translation from the King James into the Aramaic language, which was the language spoken and still spoke in Syria. Or a French Version would be translated from the Greek into French. And so a version is translated from a manuscript. Anytime you have a version, you know you have a manuscript that predates it because the version is translated from that. Okay, now when it comes to versions of the New Testament, we've got about 9,000 part or complete going back to about 150 A.D. About 150 A.D. The oldest version is a Cyrenaic version in 150 A.D. in the Aramaic language. By the way, I might point out as we... we hit this, there are a number of scholars who believe that some of the New Testament books, uh, like Matthew, for example, were originally written in Aramaic and then were translated into Greek. But then, and the reason they think this, and I won't go into the evidence involved because we get off the subject, but remember that Jesus and the apostles spoke Aramaic. Uh, the Hebrew language that the Jews spoke was lost in the Babylonian captivity. Going back to the time of Daniel, when Babylon defeated Israel and they carried them into captivity, and they were in captivity for 70 years, 
until some of them came back home and rebuilt their temple. Well, during that period of 70 years, they lost their language. In other words, they simply started speaking. All their youth that came up were taught the Aramaic language. Uh, remember when Daniel was carried in captivity, one of the first things they did was send him to a language school and taught him to speak the Aramaic language. And so they spoke Aramaic. When Jesus walked this earth, he did not speak Hebrew. He did not speak Greek. He spoke the Aramaic language. And it was the language of all the apostles. Now, this can also help you understand something that we won't get into tonight, but why that when you read uh, an account in one of the Gospels of a teaching of Jesus, and maybe it says the same thing but slightly different than an account in one of the other Gospels, well, keep in mind that Jesus spoke that in Aramaic, and that writer is translated into Greek. And so it would be like if Chuck and I and Mark and Tim heard somebody say something in the English language. We all heard exactly the same thing. And now, let's say that we're all fluent in Spanish. Now we're going to take and translate that into Spanish to each of the four of us. We will not write it the same way. Each of us will choose, on, on a certain occasions, different words to express a thought. There will be times when maybe Chuck will use one word, where I'll use three or four, or vice versa. And, and there is no way that four would use exactly the same words. In fact, if you were writing it in English, we heard it in English, we're going to write it in English, we would not write it exactly the same way. So a version then is a translation from the manuscript into the language. Obviously, you can't have a version unless you've got a manuscript behind it. So even though your manuscripts go back to 250 AD, your versions go back to 150, and they were copied from... Uh, manuscripts translated from. Now, there are about 1,500 letters that go all the way back into the first century. And some of the people involved here are people like uh, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Clement, and a number of others, Ignatius. These people wrote, going all the way back into the time when the apostles actually lived, and then coming up to some years after them, and we have about 1,500 of the actual letters and also some copies that these people wrote. Now, when we look at the New Testament, you say, well, the oldest manuscript goes back to 250. The oldest version is 150. And we've got to prove that the apostles wrote this material in the first century. The letters are very important here because in these letters... The entire New Testament is quoted in the writings of these people. And all of the New Testament is quoted from. And not only that, but you can go all the way back into the second century and find individuals who will list and quote from all 27 of the New Testament books. And by the way, we could make just a very detailed study of these letters and, and how they quote from it and, and how they list the books and things of that nature. But suffice it to say that you can reconstruct the New Testament from these letters. Well, then what does that mean? If these go into the first century, and they quote from those 27 books, and you can totally reconstruct it, then obviously nobody can deny that it was written in the first century at the time when the apostles actually lived. And so we can show that from the letters themselves. When we translate, though, the Bible into the English language, we use the manuscripts. 
because the manuscript would obviously be the most exact. For example, if you was going to use one of the versions, let's say like the Latin, uh, the Latin version of the that Jerome came up with for the Roman Catholic Church. If you went to the Latin version or this, the uh, Aramaic version in order to translate into English, you would really be getting it third hand. In other words, they have already translated it from Greek into their language, and now you're coming from their language into yours. Well, then what if somebody comes from English into something else? You can see that every time we take a step, we're going to have more inaccuracies that, that come along. It'd be just like uh, telling a story to somebody, he tells it to somebody else, he tells it to somebody else, Obviously, the further down the line, there's going to be a few more inaccuracies come in. So when we translate, we're always going back to the manuscripts, where they copy directly word for word. So the manuscripts are what we translate from. Everybody, whether it's French, English, uh, whatever the language, Russian, we're going to go back to the actual manuscripts, translate into our language. But these are important, and these are important, from the standpoint of, for example, right here, what you show is that immediately, right after the apostles, you've got the New Testament copied in all of these languages and circulated. Did you know that's never happened to any book in all the history of mankind? There's never been a time when somebody wrote a particular book and then just almost immediately it's copied in all the various languages and, and circulated in the world. It's just simply never happened before. It's an absolutely unique characteristic of the New Testament. And then to have this much material about something and this many manuscripts is unique to the New Testament. I'll give you an example. If uh, we, we speak of Socrates and we quote Socrates, you know, on statements like, know thyself, you don't have one piece of anything that Socrates ever wrote. All you know about Socrates, you get through the writings of Plato. Most of it comes through a work known as the Republic. The oldest manuscript that we have of the works of Plato are in the 9th century A.D. And he lived in the 3rd century B.C. In other words, the, the oldest manuscripts are 1,200 years after his life. And you've only got somewhere, uh, if memory serves me correctly, 10 or 12 manuscripts. It's very few. What is true of Plato is true of these other great authors that, that historians quote from all the time. They'll quote any number of the great authors from the past, Herodotus, Thucydides, and they don't bat an eye and quote it. But always the source they're quoting from is literally hundreds and hundreds of years removed from when the man lived. In other words, it's been transmitted and copied. Obviously, the work itself has deteriorated. I mean, if it wasn't written in stone, it's in the process of deteriorating from the moment it's written. And by the way, the only reason we have these going back as far as they do is because of the way they were protected. For example, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in 1947 uh, containing manuscripts of the Bible that go all the way back to a century to two centuries before Christ. They were put in jars and hid in the caves in order to protect them. See, there's been several times in history where a political force tried to destroy all the scriptures. For example, Diocletian in, in 303 A.D., uh, set out to destroy all the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, but it turned out to be something great for Christianity. And, and you can see where God providentially used it. As a result of them trying to destroy the scriptures, Christians and Jews hid their scriptures in jars and put them in caves and buried them and protected them in every way possible. So it, it turned out to be a, a great thing. But 
had these materials that they were originally copied of simply been left out in the open and used, they would have deteriorated. And so that's why that you're not going to find original manuscripts going back into the late the centuries, going back to the time of Christ and before, because the material it was written on would have just simply deteriorated, but they continued to copy that material on down through the years. The things that are lasting, where you have the actual thing, will be the materials like, for example, that we'll look at in archaeology, where it's actually written in clay and written on rocks, th things of that nature. Okay, now, anybody with any question or comment on anything about the manuscripts, the versions, or the letters of the New Testament? We said that there were 200,000 plus mistakes, and that's what, if you were sitting in a class in college, being in a secular school, they would just simply throw that off, 200,000 mistakes, and really not go much farther than that. But those 200,000 plus mistakes are scattered throughout those thousands of manuscripts. In other words, we don't have a manuscript of the New Testament that has 200,000 mistakes in it, but we've got mistakes that are scattered throughout thousands of manuscripts. Sometimes you have a simple word that was miscopied, misspelled by maybe one letter, and then 50 other people that copied that also, obviously, mis miscopied that in exactly the same way. So what that amounts to is 50 mistakes in those manuscripts. Now, here's what the textual critic does. He takes the manuscripts, he lays them down side by side, and we're going to make one. And by the way, I look for something here to, to give you some experience with, and I couldn't find it. I, I made up something some years back, and I've used it a number of times. And what I do is just simply take a, a paragraph uh, out of the Bible and copy it uh, six or so times and purposely make mistakes in it, in each one, and then leave a place for you to reconstruct the original paragraph. You don't have the original paragraph because all six of them uh, I've purposely made mistakes in but you would find that it would be very easy for you to take those six and perfectly reconstruct the original and then you could compare it with your own text, your own, your own Bible. And the reason being that you're not going to make the same mistake every single solitary time. In other words, if one copyist leaves out a word or misspells a word or throws in a synonym, other people are not going to make that same mistake. And so these type of mistakes are very easy to spot when you lay the material down side by side. So we lay the manuscripts down, and here's something that's very interesting at first. We find out that they're seven-eighths perfect. And what we mean by that is when we lay our top manuscript material down, seven out of every eight words perfectly coincides. And that in itself is very good if you, if you think that in terms of dealing with something that has been copied by hand, there's no copy machines, there's no printers, there's no typewriters, Everything is copied by hand. That was the work of the scribe back then. Seven-eighths are absolutely perfect. When you're considering a, a plurality of manuscripts, that's great. From seven-eighths of the material to fifteen-sixteenths of the material, the only mistake that you find is maybe a mistake in spelling. Okay? A mistake in spelling. Maybe a, a, a word has been left out. If you're going to copy something every now and then, you're just going to leave a word out. And so uh, a mistake in spelling, leaving out a word, will constitute the only mistakes from 7 eighths to 15 sixteenths. In other words, up to 15 sixteenths of the material, the only mistakes is some individual that left out a word or miscopied a particular letter or dropped a letter or something of that nature. Again, even with something that simple, everybody's not going to do the same thing. 
So consequently, the copyist can take this right here, the textual critic, and he can very easily make it 15 sixteenths perfect. Uh, he doesn't have any problem whatsoever. All right, from 15 sixteenths to 999 out of 1,000, the only mistakes that were made was something like maybe a synonym that was thrown in. Here's a fellow that's copying, and instead of putting the exact word, he's put in a synonym for that particular word. And so here we have maybe a synonym. We've got a, a blank place where he, he left out a word. Maybe he added a word. Uh, you know, maybe he may have added another particular word that, that fit the meaning itself uh, subconsciously. In other words, as he's writing, uh, he, has, he has his thoughts, and he's actually trying to do it right, but just like when you type even, you misspell words, you leave out words, uh, you sometimes will type a synonym. They did the same thing. So, no more than that type of thing makes up 999 out of every thousand words. Again, the textual critic has no problem getting it to the point that he, he's confident of its accuracy to the point of 999 out of every thousand words, which means less than one half of one percent of the, the total New Testament is under question. All right, Westcott and Hort, who were responsible for the 1901 American Standard Version that is still looked on as the most literal word-for-word -word translation in the English language. This was their comment on the, on the Greek text. And that was that you could pick up the Greek text and after the lower critic had finished with it and you could be absolutely confident of 999 out of every thousand words. And all the debate that exists in textual criticism centers around that one half of one percent. All the debate centers around that. They gave you a few examples last week. Uh, the last verses in the, in the Gospel according to Mark is under question. Uh, the reason it's under question is because it's not in the earliest manuscripts that we have. And when you come to passages like Acts 8, where the eunuch confessed before he was baptized, uh, it's not in the newer. Acts 8.37 is not in your newer translations. It'll be in the brackets, but not, it'll not be in there because it's not found in the oldest manuscripts. It, it's found in those that come after. But on the other hand, it is found in the versions. So consequently, what the author is saying, he's not saying that the latter part of Mark doesn't belong there, or that Acts 8.37 doesn't belong there. He's just saying that you can't know for sure. And so we have about one half of 1% of the New Testament that the critic would say, you just simply cannot be 100% confident that this is the way that it originally was. But in that very small part, there is nothing there that affects a single solitary doctrine. There's not a single solitary doctrine that is affected. But in other words, it, it doesn't matter whether it's there or it's not there. There's not a single doctrine. And there's every time it involves something that is actually stated uh, someplace else in the Bible. For example, I personally believe that Acts 8.37 was not in the manuscript. I believe it was added. But I believe the scribe that did it thought he was performing a service. It was the custom or the practice for people to confess before baptism. And so when he came to that event that Luke recorded, uh, he just simply added the confession and put it in there. He thought he was doing everybody a service. Well, he, of course, he should have left it alone, but he really wasn't trying to tamper with anything. He was That was their custom, and he just simply pinned it in there as he wrote it down. The same with uh, Mark, that latter part. It's interesting that part under question would be on the last page of, of the manuscripts themselves. So there's a possibility that in the original, 
that that last plage, you know, became lost, and that's what happened there. But then some of the versions already had copied it, and that's why they're in the versions. Uh, then others believe that, uh, that no, somebody later on added that particular ending to Mark. But the interesting thing, even those that believe that it was not originally put there by Mark, do not believe that it is something that's false. In other words, they're just simply saying that we don't believe that Mark had it originally in his document because we don't find it back here in the oldest materials. Suffice it to say that for all practical purpose, you can pick it up and be confident of all the words that you read in the text itself. So the lower critic tells us that when it comes to the New Testament, number one, you can prove that the New Testament was written and published in the first century while the people were alive and involved in those events. Okay? And as we'll see when we get to the another chart over here, that is your acid test of history itself. And number two, that you can prove that it was written and you can prove that it's been accurately transmitted down through the years. In fact, when it comes to accuracy, there has been no work in history that has been handled in the accurate way that the Old and New Testament scriptures have been. Why would you think that would be the case? No, no, no other work in history that's been handled with such care where the copyists tried to be so meticulously accurate. The people believed it was the Word of God. Even if it's not the Word of God, they believed it. And the Jews believed that their scriptures was the Word of God. And so obviously, they believed it so strongly that uh, that many times when it came to the name of God, they just left a blank space. You know, they wouldn't even write. And so they, they believed it extremely strong, and there, that, therefore when they copied, they didn't want to tamper with it in any way. And so there's been no work in all of history that you could go to uh, and show that it has been translated with anything near the respect and integrity that the New Testament. So as a work that you can show that has been taken, been written at the particular time and published as refutable testimony and has been accurately transmitted through the centuries, it, it really is just, it's unique in all of literature. You cannot present that kind of case uh, for any other piece of literature that you can for the New Testament. Okay, we look at the lower criticism of the New Testament in detail. Now let's look at the, the higher criticism. The higher critic has his text as given to him by the lower critic. And so it's very important to him that it was published as uh, uh, during the time that the people were alive that were involved in the events. It's, it's important to him. It's been accurately transmitted down through the years. But see, that doesn't prove it's true. Uh, maybe Paul wrote this at that time, and maybe it's been accurately copied, and maybe it's been actually transmitted down through the years, uh, but maybe Paul was lying. See, in other words, if Paul was lying, it would still be accurately copied and accurately transmitted through the years. So I'm saying that doesn't prove that the New Testament is true. Okay? The fact that you can show it was written in the first century and has been accurately transmitted through the years, it just means that you can say, I am working with the text that Paul wrote. And he wrote it and he published it at this particular time. Uh, whether it's true or not, we've got to see. It's like uh, you're, you're in the process of trying to solve a crime. And so you take the testimony of each of the persons in here. Well, you're confident they've got, you've got their testimony, that you've got exactly what they've said. But that doesn't prove it's true. Every one of them may be lying. 
And so the higher critic now is concerned is, hey, is this true? How confident can we be? Well, we go back to the first century. The Romans had historians. Tacitus, good example, the, probably the top historian of Rome. The, the Greek had historians. The Jews had historians. The, probably the most famous Jewish historian of the first century was Josephus. By Gnostic sources, there were heretic Christian groups. That, uh, groups that came out of Christianity, but yet were rejected by Christians because of the views that they had towards the Bible. And the, one group is the Gnostics. The Gnostics, uh, the word Gnostic itself means, means knowledge. And the Gnostics he, uh, had a theory that had evolved. The theory started at the time the apostles were actually preaching. It, it stated that since uh, God was all good, and man in the flesh was evil and in sin, that it was impossible for deity to dwell in human flesh. And so the Gnostics would have denied the deity of Jesus, that he was God incarnate. And so they were a heretic group among the Christians. The mainstream Christians rejected them, but these people did a lot of writing. And they just because somebody has a wrong view on something, doesn't mean that everything he writes is wrong. When he talks about historical events, you may differ with his interpretation, but you can still look and see the event itself. And a lot of people that may have an interpretation that you don't agree with at all, they may still deal with a lot of facts that are so. So there's Roman historians, there's Greek historians, there's Jewish historians, there's the Gnostic sources, then there's the early church fathers, people like Polycarp, and others of that nature that we mentioned a few of them a little while back. In fact, that these are the guys that wrote these 1,500 letters. Justin Martyr would be one. Eusebius would be one. Okay, these people all wrote. The higher critic is concerned what they said about any event that may have pertained in any way uh, to the sources that we have. All right, remember some of the examples that we gave. Uh, Josephus talks about Herod, talks about the arrest of John the Baptist, talks about the death of John the Baptist. In Acts 12, when you read of Herod uh, being killed, the Bible says an angel of the Lord took his life. It gives the reason. Josephus describes that event in detail, much more detail than you have in the Bible, and also the violent death of Herod. The Gnostic sources deal with those events in the New Testament. Uh, the early church fathers write and comment uh, on the events themselves. What we can see, for example, in the early church fathers is from the very first, they believed without doubt in their mind the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. You just simply never find a historical source among the Christians, but that their center of belief revolves around the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That uh, the Gentiles that were converted were converted for only one reason. They were convinced of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead on the basis of evidence. Uh, Polycarp, for example, in his writing is, is overwhelmed by the, the Jewish prophecies of the Messiah and how they were historically fulfilled in Christ. And these people were very astute in their examination of the materials. For example, the first harmony of the Gospels was done by one of the early church fathers in 160 AD, where they take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and lay them down side by side and, and compare them. Tacitus 
says that Jesus was executed by Pontius Pilate. Okay? And, and gives the Caesars and all that's involved. For example, Tacitus talks about Nero. Uh, Nero's burning of uh, uh, Rome. Uh, the, the persecution of the Christians. The burning of Christians at the stake. The lighting of his gardens with persecuted Christians. All of this is mentioned by Nero. Uh, he gives us a lot of information concerning uh, Nero that fits some statements that we have in the, in the Bible itself. So the high critic will look at all of these, and then he'll look at the New Testament. He says, well, do we have any contradictions here? Or where do they coincide? And here's an interesting thing that happens. We find, obviously, that all the Roman historians, in fact, none of those we're looking at are Christian. But the interesting thing is that when they hit on the facts as they pertain to the New Testament, there is no contradiction. There will be differences in interpretation. For example, among the Romans, the Greeks, the Jews, the early church fathers, the Gnostics, anybody that we can find any record from, absolutely nobody denies that Jesus lived and that he taught and that he was killed and that he was buried and there was an empty tomb. Nobody ever denies that. In, in fact, did you know that uh, when it comes to trying to deny the historicity of Jesus, you've got to come all the way up to the 18th century in the age of rationalization. It just simply had never been done in history. And of course, that has been totally refuted now. There's no sense in getting to that now. That, that's good for a later discussion, the 18th and 19th century and, and their effect uh, on, the, on the writings themselves. But I'm saying that among the people that wrote back then, the death, the burial, and the empty tomb are not even challenged. You never find anybody in the New Testament arguing about whether or not the tomb is empty. You never find anybody arguing about whether or not Jesus lived. Uh, you never find anybody arguing about whether or not he was dead. You know, everybody agreed that he lived, everybody agreed that he was killed, everybody agreed that, that three days later the tomb was empty. And so it is among all the other sources. There's no, there's no difference there. Give me an example of a Gentile source. Uh, a fellow by the name of Sura Bar Serpian. Uh, writing his son, who is in jail. This manuscript is dated in 73 A.D. It's in the British Museum right now. In writing his son, who was in jail, his son was in jail because of his philosophical beliefs. In other words, he differed with Rome. And in writing his son, he mentioned other people who had stood up for what they believed and were put to death. He mentioned Socrates and his being put to death but then his argument was that Socrates was proved right. He mentions Pythagoras and his being put to death, but then his argument was that later generations proved Pythagoras right and the state wrong. And he mentions Jesus. And the fact that the Jews had crucified Jesus, and then his argument was, but he was vindicated, and he mentions the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and he, as a pagan, looked on that as God taking vengeance on the Jewish people for crucifying the Messiah. See, the Christians were out preaching that Jesus said that the temple was going to be destroyed. Jerusalem was going to be de defeated. The Jewish nation was going to be defeated. And he promised that judgment. And then when that judgment came, everybody that under the influence of the, of the preaching of the first century was aware that the Christians had been teaching this. And so here is a writer acknowledging that point. So 
What we have there is a difference in interpretation. How did the tomb become empty? But there's no argument that it was empty. Well, what I'm saying is that just makes a good example of the other events in the New Testament. People may differ with the interpretation. They may say, hey, I don't believe that was a miracle. For example, in the Jewish works like the Gemara, they may say, hey, I don't believe that's a miracle. But they don't say, hey, the writers of the New Testament just made up these things. They acknowledge that Christians were converting people because of people believing that they were performing miracles. They attribute it to sorcery and the work of the devil. But isn't that what they do in the New Testament? The New Testament records the Jews that reject it as attributing the miracles to sorcery or the works of the devil and in their own writing. They don't deny that something happened. They don't deny that other people believe it was a miracle, but they attribute it to other sources and even acknowledge that this is one of the ways that Christianity had spread. William Ramsey, father of New Testament archaeology, William Ramsey was taught and educated in Germany under the uh, Tubigen influence, the Tubigen theory. This was a theory that stated that the Gospels were written in the second century and that this material in the Gospels had evolved and been embellished. In other words, that Jesus did live and he was a great moral person, a good teacher, but uh, these, it was embellished over the years and the miracles were put in and you really don't have a document that was written and published in the first century. And now that was going out uh, in the past century uh, and came from a, a group of people that was referred to as the Tubigen School, the Tubigen Theory. Well, Ramsey had been influenced by that and persuaded that it was so. And so as he set out as an archaeologist studying the New Testament, he states in his own writing that he set out with a bias against the New Testament. But what happened to him is that in specifically as he looked at Luke and followed the journeys of Paul as recorded in the book of Acts and looked at the gospel according to Luke and went through all the various archaeological discoveries that pertained in any way, he was so overwhelmed that he made the statement that of all the historians that he had ever traced through archaeology, that Luke was the most accurate historian of anybody that he had ever traced. In fact, he said that there is absolutely no way that Luke could have written that material except it had been written in the way the Bible gives it. In other words, he's just too accurate. You can't sit down a century later and get all your names and all your places and all your geography and, and all your little idioms and language skills and customs and, and everything like that and your titles. You just can't sit down and do all that and get it exactly the way it was, and that's what Luke had there. And so he was persuaded by the accuracy of it and, and came to the conclusion that they were absolutely wrong. Well, now, by the way, there's nobody that I would know that would put up an argument for the Tubigen theory. It's been refuted, and archaeology has been a big part in that. In fact, it's interesting that some of the theories against the Bible that were posed in the last century or the century before, that later archaeological discoveries have refuted them, but those theories are still out there in the books and still being read and sometimes by people who are not aware that the theory itself has already been refuted, sort of like Darwin's theory of organic evolution. The theory as Darwin believed it has already been refuted. There's no scientist today who believes the theory as Darwin postulated it. Uh, it's been revised and revised and, and revised again, but most out there are not aware of that, that the theory as Darwin believed it has already been totally discredited and has continually been revised uh, through the years. 
These are scholars. William Albright is a very, again, a top archaeologist. Uh, Albright, in his latest work, is of the belief that the entire New Testament was completed before 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. And by the way, many, maybe most, of your top scholars today would put all of the New Testament before 70 AD. Now, I know that when you pick up your Bible, you're going to you look at Revelation and you'll find that 98 or 96 AD there. Uh, the fellow that put it there is just simply copying something that's been passed through the years, and so it is with the works of John. In fact, so it is for most of those dates. They just simply copy it. But the copying is not in keeping with the latest research. The vast majority of scholars that I'm aware of and, and those that are recorded and considered the top of this area place all of the New Testament before 70 AD. In fact, uh, I don't believe we're too many years uh, from when you're, gonna, you're not going to see the 96 or 98 AD about Revelation, but it'll all be before, before 70 AD. All right, now, the higher critic not only is concerned about all the other sources and testing this out as well as he can, any archaeological discoveries, any, any source he can get his hands on, he's also concerned about, concerned about the unity of the material. Uh, the Gospels. Um, are the four Gospels harmonious? Do they contradict one another? Paul's letters, are his letters consistent? Are they harmonious? Uh, are there contradictions there? Uh, do we have the writings of an honest man who's, who's really not trying to deceive anybody? What about Luke and John and Peter and the others? Are they consistent within themselves and are they consistent together? In other words, in the same way that you evaluate testimony today uh, is what this person's saying consistent? Does he contradict himself? In fact, one of the ways that we examine people is himself. And so we do they contradict themselves? Do they contradict one another? And how does this body of material compare with other sources such as we talked about up here? The higher critics involved with all of that. Okay, anybody with any question on what we covered so far? Before the higher critic, uh deals with the sources of the other historians, I guess the lower critic deals with those first, right? Like the Right. The, just so right. In, in other words, the lower critic would deal with each one of those before the higher critic. When you read uh, uh, a work of a historian like Josephus, for example, it's the lower critic's job to say, do we have an accurate manuscript? Was it actually written at this time? For example, there are parts in Josephus that have been interpolated. Uh, there's several very positive statements in Josephus about Jesus. But all evidence is that later Christian writers put them in. And they really did a disservice to Christianity. In other words, they believed it should have been there, and so they put it in there. And sometimes Christians in, in evidences today use it. I believe they make a mistake. I believe that when you present evidence for something, never use anything that, ha that you have any doubt about. Only that's material that, that has proven and you're sure of. Keep in mind, materials that you may think or so are good for your own intuitive understanding and they're good to have in your mind because later information may either verify that or knock it out. But when you're relaying information to, to somebody that, that is not a believer, we need to limit ourselves only to those facts that we're absolutely sure of. And so I, I believe personally that, that Christians ought to look at the lower critics work here. If the lower critic says that, hey, the evidence is Josephus did not say this, 
that it's an interpolation that was written later, we ought to listen to it. I mean, he's just, he's simply being honest with the material, and we need to make it clear that, that we don't want to be prejudiced, that, that we're honest. But right, the lower critic handles everything before the higher critic takes hold of it and uses it. Okay, in looking at testimony and evaluating testimony, these are the areas, there can be more, but these are your key areas to look at anybody's testimony, whether it's uh, involving the events of the Bible or, or any other event that we deal with. And remember what we said last week, that 99.9% uh, .9 of everything you believe is by faith, because you haven't seen it with your eyes, you believe it based on your intelligent evaluation of the evidence and determining whether or not it's so. Juries convict people based on evidence or they set them free based on a lack of evidence or set them free maybe based on evidence itself. We're a finite being. We only see so far. We can only hear so much. But from within our finiteness, we're made in the image of God and we have an absolutely fantastic mind that we have the ability to take information and to evaluate it and to determine whether or not it's truthful even though we haven't experienced the event itself. Alright, now, testimony derives part of its power in the number of witnesses that you have. Okay, obviously, if, if uh, you're hearing something that is insignificant or not important to you and a person uh, relates a story to you, you may very well believe that uh, simply without any further examination or anything like that because it's something that's not all that important to you. But the more important the information becomes to you, the more you become concerned about more than just one witness. And so if one person tells you something that is extremely important to you, it involves very serious information, your mind will want more information. You may not get it, but you want it. You want more than one doctor to tell you that you need this operation. You want more than one doctor to agree that you've got cancer and you need uh, this particular treatment. Uh, before you uh, sell your house and, and hawk everything you've got to buy you a rig to drill for oil in your backyard, you want more than one geologist that says that you've got oil in your backyard. And you, you want a plurality, a large number that, that, that will say this in order to give you confidence. Before you invest your money in a business venture, you want more than one person telling you this looks like a successful venture. You want a plurality of people. So the more that you have involved in a particular testimony, the less chance for error. We didn't say there still wasn't chance for error. We said there's less chance for error, and the testimony takes on more weight, okay? The more of the witnesses that are involved. Just as important as the number is the quality of the witness. Uh, for example, if I lined up three people to testify in court, and uh, one of them is on drugs, the other one is an alcoholic, and the other one's a prostitute, and the other one is a guy that's spent more time in jail than out of jail, a fourth character, and I'm going to bring them before a jury with a testimony about a particular event. Well, um, you're really just wasting your time. They may, everyone be telling the truth, but you couldn't have any confidence in it. You just simply couldn't. And so the quality of the testimony, and by the way, when we get to this evidence, uh, uh, like you mentioned, Mark, on how that we, we do things intuitively, and we don't call it evidence and all, to show you what quality means, even in your everyday life, 
after you're around people for a while, you size them up. There are some people that just tend to exaggerate things. There are some people that are more emotional than others. And if, if, they, if, if they say there was a car wreck and ten people were killed, you think maybe there was a car wreck. You, you don't <laughs> grab those ten, ten dead people right then. <laughs> then there are some people that are very meticulous. They're very cautious. Uh, they're the accountant type of individual. They go everything, over everything with a fine-tooth comb. If that person says there was a car wreck and there's ten people killed, there's a good chance you'll grab it right away. And so that you do this all the time. You evaluate one another and, and you determine whether this person exaggerates, whether they're very emotional or they're a very cautious type individual. And by that, you give weight to their testimony. Also involved in the quality is the expertise of the individual. For example, if, a, if an engineer tells me something about my health, that is not near as meaningful to me as a doctor telling me something about my health. And, and so, or if, uh, if another person in, a, in another area uh, tells me something about uh, science who's not a scientist, that's not as meaningful to me as a scientist telling me about science. Uh, by the way, there's been times in Christian evidences where we've, I think, made some mistakes. We've had times when uh, preachers who were not scientists and many times not even really studied in the field of science have tried to get into the field of science in, in the area of Christian evidences, and sometimes they have made statements that were just simply inaccurate. And sometimes they've tried to make the Bible say things that it really didn't say, or make it say more than it did say, and we would be better off and, and would come across and be respected more if when we deal with the field of science, we make sure that, that we've got uh, facts here that scientists uh, say are actual facts. So the quality of your witnesses is very important. The number and also the quality of the individuals. The unity. Uh, we want to look at a more than one witness. We want to look at the quality of each witness. And then we want unity. We, we want to see if they all agree and to what extent they agree. Now, I wrote this out here big, apparent a contradic contradiction, because although on the surface you think, I don't want any contradictions at all. Uh, if I'm going to know that this is true. But really that's not so. Uh, apparent contradictions are, are good. Uh, if two people or three people or four people are going to get together and try and deceive somebody and manufacture a lie, there's a good chance you're not going to find any contradiction because they're going to get together and go over their story. But if they're not involved in a lie, if each of those four people are involved in something that they're absolutely positive is true, they're not going to be worried about getting together. Because after all, I've got the truth. I can tell it as, as, as well as that guy over there. So when they write, there may very well be some times where they seem to contradict one another. Well, then those contradictions are good because they show that, hey, he's not really trying to agree with this fellow. And so anytime you've got testimony where there seems to be some contradiction, on the surface it sounds bad. Now, we're not saying that we want proven contradictions. But we're saying that apparent contradictions, statements that seem to be contradictory, are actually good because they show that these people are really not trying to agree with one another. And so if uh, Ron sees an accident, Chuck does, and Tim, Tim does, Wasim does, and, and they each relate it, and, and they, they each agree that there was an accident, but there's a few areas where there seems to be a, a difference there, well, that just lets me know that they haven't got together in the corner and, and made up something. 
if they agreed right down the line, word for word, uh, the judge would throw it out. Because you're not going to agree uh, right down the line, word for word, if you're given individual accounts. So apparent contradictions are very good. They show individuality. They show that the individual is not trying to concur. And then we look and see uh, what the concurrence says. A lot of times, there seems to be contradiction simply because we don't have all the information. And a lot of times, later, later events will give more information in that area. Let me give you an example. You know, I'll use Daniel because on Wednesday night in the college class we're studying Daniel. In the second century, a fellow by the name of Porphyry presented uh, evidence to show that Daniel was really written in 165 B.C. and was not written at the time the Bible places it. Of course, Daniel, the Babylonian captivity, was uh, 605 down to 535 B.C. And so that's where the Bible puts Daniel, 605 to 535. And so in, in trying to give evidence that he was written later, and by the way, the reason he was doing this is because Daniel has some fantastic prophecies, that if Daniel was actually written between 605 and, and 535, then you can hang it up if you're trying to say it's not inspired. You have to acknowledge that there's prophecies there that were fulfilled. He just said some fantastic things. But if you put it at 165, and then some of these prophecies are no more than just history uh, that Daniel wrote and then tried to make it appear as prophecy. Or he, he took the text, and in uh, the second chapter, it mentioned that when Daniel was carried into captivity, he was sent to school for three years before he appeared before Nebuchadnezzar. But then in the next chapter, it states that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in the second year and that Daniel came before him, and Daniel interpreted that dream. So on the one hand, you've got Daniel uh, going to school for three years before he appears before him, and then right after that, it says in the second year. And so they said, hey, contradiction, you know, that, uh, he, he, that he didn't get his facts straight. Then in chapter 5, you run into the king of Babylon by the name of Belshazzar. And Porphyry pointed out, hey, there is no such thing. There is no such character as Belshazzar, as a, as a king of Babylon, that uh, Nabonidus was the king at that particular time. That we, we, this shows that, that this was manufactured material. There is no such character as a Belshazzar who was ever king of Babylon, and at this particular time, Nabonidus was king. And so he put forth that as a couple of points of contradiction between Daniel and the actual facts of history. A contradiction within the book itself and a contradiction with another source. Now, there were other points, too, but I just chose those two because they're simple to deal with. Okay, what happens is that through other historical sources and archaeological discoveries, primarily due to the work of a fellow by the name of Bada in 1843, we find out that uh, when Nebuchadnezzar went in and, and took uh, the people of uh, Jerusalem and carried him into captivity. It was during the last year of his father's reign, Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar, during his last year, was a sick man. And so although he was the king in name, Nebuchadnezzar, his son, was actually doing the job. And so when you read that, that uh, he went in and took, uh, Nebuchadnezzar went in and took uh, Jerusalem, it was Nebuchadnezzar. But Nabopolassar was really the king in name at that point. 
Well, when you read over here that Daniel came before him during the second year, although it says earlier he'd been in captivity for three years, it was during the third year. Nabopolassar died after a year, and then Nebuchadnezzar officially took over. So he had really been king for three years, but only two years officially. So what happened now with the archaeological discovery was say, hey, Daniel is exactly right. And how could he write something that appears to be contradictory and later on to an archaeological discovery in 1843 shows to be exactly right unless he was writing the event itself. Belshazzar, the same archaeological discoveries. We find that, well, Nabonidus, he was the king of Babylon at this time. But Nabonidus was a, somewhat of an archaeologist himself, and he liked to, he was a religious person, he liked to go out and, and dig in old temples and dig up information, he really didn't care a lot about staying home in Babylon. So what he did, he had a son by the name of Belshazzar. And while Nabonidus is out gallivanting around the countryside, digging in old ruins, Belshazzar, his son, is ruling in Babylon. Well, the interesting thing is, until that work in 1843, there was absolutely no mention of Belshazzar in any other work except the Bible. He, he, he just simply wasn't in any other work. And that's why that the critic came on so strong, saying, hey, there's a real mistake here, because it wasn't in any, any other work. But now we go back and, and we find that, hey, Belshazzar was his son, and we, we dig up uh, uh, coins that have Belshazzar's name on it, coins that have Nabonidus' name, marriage license, that have both Belshazzar and Nabonidus, and then Nabonidus identified as the father of Belshazzar, and Belshazzar ruling while his daddy was out gallivanting around. Then you read a little further in the fifth chapter, and after Daniel interpreted that writing on the wall, remember it said that Belshazzar said he would make him the third ruler, and we wondered at that. What did he mean, the third ruler? He, the queen, and then Daniel? Well, that's what a lot of the commentators thought and wrote, thought and wrote through the years. It must be the king, queen, and then Daniel. Now we understood it. The real ruler was Nabonidus, then it was his son Belshazzar, and Daniel would be number three. The point is that when we finally got to the facts, it perfectly concurred with what was in the text of Daniel, but yet those facts were not existent in any source except the Bible until those discoveries in 1843. See, what happened when Babylon was destroyed, totally destroyed in fulfillment of prophecies by Isaiah, all of those records were destroyed. And now they were all buried. And so they, at the time, at the New Testament time, uh, and in the, at the time 165, and in the second century now, there's just simply no record outside the Bible of that statement. And so here's Porphyry making these statements of contradictions in Daniel about contradiction within itself, contradiction with other sources, that an archaeologist in 1843 would refute. Well, the point is, what did Porphyry have in the first place? Did he have a contradiction or did he have an apparent contradiction? Apparent. apparent contradiction. There had been any number of times when there was something that seemed to be contradictory and a later discovery showed that no, it's not. The point is that you have to be very careful before you say that two statements contradict one another. <coughs> uh, you've got to make sure that you have all the information. Now, if you have all the information, but if you don't have all the information, then you've got to be very careful. Uh, obviously, if, if uh, you have a statement that says Jesus was raised on the third day, 
and, a, and another one says he was raised on the sixth day, and another one on the ninth day. That's, that's, that's contradictory material. But there are any number of cases, like we've talked about, where the names of kings and when they reigned and certain events are involved, that a statement may be made that seems to be contradictory simply because you don't have all the sources. And then when you get all the sources, that the contradiction passes by the wayside. Okay, we're looking at the number, the quality, and then the unity itself. The purpose that the writer has in mind becomes very, very important. In other words, uh, if, uh, if I'm trying to sell you a Hoover vacuum cleaner, and I'm a Hoover salesman, and I make my living selling Hoover vacuum cleaners, you may like me, we may be very good friends, but you've got every reason to believe that I may be just a little bi biased, right? And you may even buy it, but still you know that obviously I'm biased towards Hoover. I mean, after all, that's what, that's what I'm selling. Well, when a writer writes, <coughs> we're concerned about this thing of bias. Does he, does he have reason to be biased in a certain direction? This is where certain things about the apostles and the witnesses in the New Testament become very important. Paul, devout Jew, extremely educated individual, a believer of the falsehood of Christianity. He believed that Jesus was not the Messiah. He was doing everything he could to, to stamp out Christianity. And by the way, there is no secular historian of ancient history that will deny those statements. That was Paul. He makes a 180-degree face, and now he's proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, writing at least 13, maybe 14 letters of the New Testament. Well, what was Paul's purpose in his change? Did he benefit himself financially? Or did it cost him financially? Did he benefit himself in prestige? Or did it cost him in prestige? Did he benefit himself in ease of life? Or did it cost him? Did he escape persecution? Or did he bring persecution on himself? In other words, if Paul had anything other than honesty that was guiding him, the man is crazy. He's involved in a lie that puts him in jail, gets him beat up, and eventually sends him to his death, causes him to be hated and rejected by the Jewish people that he was so esteemed by. And not only that, even among the Christians, we think of Paul as the great man today, the greatest of the apostles. But he wasn't thought that way in the first century. That, see, the Jewish Christians looked at Paul as a way out liberal because of the way he's bringing all these Gentiles in and telling people that you were not saved by keeping the law, that you were saved by grace through faith, that at your very best you did not in any sense merit salvation. And man, that was way out of line for a Jew. And so when we look at Paul, you can find no motivation to say what he said other than the fact that he believed it. Well, what is true of Paul is true of the other writers. And it's true of the prophets. You can literally say that the New Testament was sealed with the blood of the people that wrote it. They didn't gain anything. They lost. Christianity in the first century was a little wayward sect within, Ju within Judaism. When you read in Hebrews uh, from a passage of scripture that we abuse, uh, in Hebrews 10.25, not forsaken the assembly of ourselves together, well, I'm not advocating that Christians, you know, not go to services or anything like that. I, I go regularly and believe every Christian should. But we've used that passage about somebody maybe that didn't come to Wednesday night or Sunday night or etc. as often as we think they should. That's not the context. That, that word comes from a, the Greek word that means to abandon. Those people had literally abandoned the assembly with fellow Christians because of persecution by their fellow Jews. 
It was very unpopular to be a Christian. And they knew what it was to be pulled out of their house and beaten up. They knew what it was uh, to be ostracized and people not to want to do business with them and, and to believe something that was, was rejected by the vast majority of the people. And so a number of Christians apostatized and went back into the world because it was so difficult to be a Christian. So these people, I think the only way you could fully appreciate them, Wasim could uh, appreciate, I believe, a lot more than uh, some of us in our background, would be to live in an environment where what you believed was actually what the minority believed. And, and that it really, you would be better off from within that environment believing something else. I mean, you could actually have it better if you believed something else. For example, if you're in a Muslim country, you, you are putting two strikes against you every way you turn by being a Christian. It's to your advantage uh, to be a Muslim. Well, in the first century, the entire world could have been compared to a Christian trying to live in a, as a Muslim country today. Uh, the majority of the Jews rejected Christ. And of course the Roman world and, and all the Gentile world had its various idols that they served and it wasn't popular to be a Christian. So I'm saying that when you, you look at the writer and his purpose for writing, is he writing for his own gain, his own interest? Uh, is he achieving something that is of value to himself in some wealth way or something of that nature? Okay, we look at the New Testament. We have a plurality of witnesses. How do we gauge the quality of the witnesses? They were willing to go to their death for what they believed. Now that doesn't prove they were telling the truth. But it proves at least that they thought they were telling the truth and they were very sincere and they were willing to go to their death. So you've got a large number of people of the highest quality who are willing to go to jail, willing to be beaten, willing, willing to go to their death for what they believe. Their material is has remarkable unity. I mean, people can debate over various things in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the differences between the Synoptic Gospels and John, etc. But the remarkable thing is really the agreement. Uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have the same personality in Jesus. You have the same teaching that's set forth, the same right and wrong. You have the same emphasis. For example, each of the four Gospels put all emphasis on the last week in the life of Jesus. 25% of the total material deals with the last week. All are in agreement that Jesus performed miracles for the purpose of confirming his teaching, who taught a teaching that emphasized love and kindness and mercy and, and forgiveness, who confronted the religious leaders and called them hypocrites and, and condemned the the uh, emphasis on rituals and the de-emphasis on, on humanity and morality and things of that nature, all of them picture him as being executed, uh, forecasting in advance he would come out of the grave and then coming out three days later and training these disciples and sending them out in the world. They're all in remarkable agreement there. They have a different emphasis. Uh, Matthew writes for a, a Jewish audience that has become Christians and his emphasis is trying to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophets and he's the Messiah we're looking forward to. Luke is a Gentile historian. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile historian. He's a very well-educated man. Mark is a disciple of Peter and his gospel is referred to as the gospel of Peter according to Mark in the first century. And he writes in a very simple, straightforward way. He's not a well-educated person. The vocabulary is, is 350 words minimum inferior to Luke's vocabulary. Uh, John writes at a time when the deity of Jesus is being challenged. And even those who believe in his resurrection are, are saying, well, is he really God incarnate? And so he starts off, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with us, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the Word was God, etc. You know, 
And so John's entire emphasis is this man was God incarnate. So their emphasis was different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke center on the Galilean ministry of Jesus. John centers around the teaching in and around Jerusalem during those periods of time each year when he went to Jerusalem to the various feasts. But they are remarkable in their unity and in the way that they tend together, they meet every criteria of a witness and would fit. In other words, that when you look at what we consider the way you evaluate testimony, number, quality, unity, purpose, uh, they, they score an A in every category. No, no question. Score an A in every category. The acid test of history wasn't written when the people who were involved in the events were alive and they could rise up and refute it. Uh, where was the New Testament published so that those Jews could say, hey, this is crazy. That tomb wasn't empty. Uh, or was it written in such a way they could say, what do you mean miracles? He never performed anything that even looked like a miracle. Nobody believes he did any miracles. Uh, they were written and published, and people could actually rise up and refute it in any way they wanted to. Christianity could have been refuted in the first century by simply producing the body of Jesus. Rome tried to destroy it. Judaism tried to destroy it. All they had to do was produce the body of Jesus, and nobody produced the body. When we look at uh, prophecy, dating becomes important. Can you actually prove that Isaiah was written between 740 and 690 B.C.? Can you prove that Daniel was written at that particular time in history? Can you prove it's been accurately transmitted? Can you prove that the event that it forecast is an actual historical event? Can you prove that Jesus actually began his teaching in Galilee of the Gentiles in the way that Isaiah forecast? Can you prove that there was a forerunner by the name of John the Baptist in, in just like Isaiah forecast of a forerunner? Can you prove that he was born in Bethlehem of Judea? The type of prophecy, sometimes some of the things that we call prophecy are not prophecy in the sense that we use them. Sometimes a statement is just simply a statement of truth that might be fulfilled any number of times. In other words, when Jesus said, it's like Isaiah said, uh, you've got eyes but you can't see and ears but you can't hear, etc. Isaiah wasn't prophesying something that was going to take place over there. Isaiah was talking to the people in his days and that was a truth. They were hard-hearted and they refused to respond. That could be fulfilled in any generation where you have somebody that is so biased and hard-hearted that they refuse to respond to information. And so in that sense, it was a fulfillment. When uh, Matthew quotes Hosea 11 in verse 1, and where Jesus comes out of Egypt and comes back into Nazareth and says, Out of Egypt I called my son. In its context, Hosea is talking about Israel as a nation that came out of Egyptian captivity. Matthew sees a parallel with Jesus, and he uses it in that way, and the Jews used statements that way, that if something was a truth or was a similar thing, this would, they would say this is like that particular situation, even though that person was not purposely writing of this particular event here. Then there were those prophecies where the man is specifically speaking of something that's going to happen over here, and he intends it that way, his audience understands it that way, and then it comes to pass exactly that way. That's the kind of prophecy that the Bible claims to have about Christ. In other words, that there are statements by Isaiah, Daniel, etc., Moses, about events 
they were going to take place over here, and then they happened exactly that way. Can you prove they were written in advance? Can they, in advance, can you prove it actually happened? Then we have to look at the context itself, an important area there. Are any of you familiar with Henry W. Armstrong, The Plain Truth? Henry is always, uh, in fact, of course, he's uh, he got somebody carrying on for him now. The uh, Jehovah's Witness do this a lot. They will take an event that's going on in the world, and they'll go to the Bible. They'll say, Isaiah wrote, you know, this particular event. Here's that power from the north. What's the power to the north today? Russia. And so they go to the Old Testament, and they've got the prophet talking about Hitler, and they've got him talking about Stalin, they've got him talking about Russia. And when he reads that, and you read it, and think of what's going on in the world, you think, well, man, that was really prophesied. But you go back here and look in the context. And the prophet is talking about Judah and Jerusalem and his power that he's talking is Egypt or Assyria or Babylon. And that's the context. Now the reason that's, that can sound good in the way those people use those prophecies and they per, per, persuade a lot of people that, hey, they've got some great understanding and people follow them. But they really do a tremendous disservice to the Bible because anybody who is a scholar or who's really interested in searching that out, will go back and look at the context and say, hey, he just literally raped the context. He's, he's using this like a, uh, like a recipe book or something, where he just grabs what he wants and, and comes down through history. And by the way, Christians have done that. There's been times when Christians have gone and, and grabbed statements completely out of context and then applied it to things down here. And so when we look at it, we want to look at the context. Is he talking about Russia or is he talking about Babylon or Assyria? Uh, or is he talking about the United States, or is he talking about Israel and Jerusalem in that particular context? And so when we study prophecy, all of this becomes something that is very important to us. Okay, last one. The Bible is a book that a historian can go back and examine archaeology and all the other records of history, and can examine the, the book itself. It happened in history. Uh, it, it, it all is revealed as events that happen in history. The historian can examine it and should examine it this way he should any other work of history. The Bible should not be treated as some mystery book or some book that's dropped out of heaven. It wasn't. It was written by men who were eyewitnesses of the material, and they wrote those events. For example, when, uh, the, uh, when Paul uh, writes about his conversion, he's, he's telling you just exactly what he experienced. Uh, when the gospel writers write about the things that uh, Jesus said and did in the miracles, they're just telling you what they saw and what they heard. And there's no, no big mystery there. And it, it, it ought to be studied, just as any other historical work. The claim of those of us that believe the Bible is that a historian can go over it with a fine-tooth comb and it will stand all tests of history. Any test the historian will give it, that it will stand it. If it won't, it should be rejected. It'll stand any test that the archaeologist will give it. There were times in history when people said the Jebusites and the Philistines and, and some of the Hittites, that these, these characters never existed. Uh, later archaeological discoveries identified every one of them, put them in the same location the Bible did, put them with the same customs, the same language, the same gods they worship. For example, Dagon that the Philistines worship. Uh, Dagon, emblems of Dagon and, and words about him have been dug up uh, through, through the archaeologists. The Bible is not a science book. Its purpose is not to treat science. But if it's written by men who are guided by the Holy Spirit, 
you would not expect them to, to endorse and go along with the falsehoods of science in, in their day. And the interesting thing is, and I think that a person would have to read other sources to appreciate how fantastic this is, is that it doesn't. Uh, S.I. McMillan, a book, None of These Diseases, um, conservative Methodist, an MD. Uh, that was one of the first books I read in Christian Evidences many years back. He takes the title of the book, None of These Diseases, from the statement that Moses made to the Israelites when he gave them their health code and told them if they respected that, they would not have the various diseases that the Egyptians had. His statement is that the health code of the law of Moses is so perfect that today, 3,500 years later, that given the same circumstances and the same situation, you could not improve on that health code. And to, to show how impressive it was, he goes back and he quotes, and by the way, there are a number of sources that do this. He just specifically did a book on it. Some of the remedies of the Egyptian doctors in the days of Moses. Remember, Moses was, was educated in all the ways of the Egyptians. Uh, for example, uh, if you had been cut and were bleeding, they would take some dung and some parts of animals and rotted material and, and rub it in there. And, and by the time the doctor was through with you, you'd be lucky if you lived. In fact, when you study the, the uh, various medical practices of ancient Egypt and the land in which the Israelites went into, you would realize that the healthiest thing that you could do is run every time you saw a doctor. I mean, that's just how far, <laughs> how far off they were. Uh, George Washington as recent as a couple of centuries, put to death by his doctors. They bled him to death. They, 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 they honestly thought that we know now about the white blood cells and how they fight disease, but they didn't know. They thought if you got sick, they were going to bleed you. And he was literally put to death, bled to death uh, by his doctors. Um, in the Civil World, World War, we, we say that there were more Americans killed in the Civil World War than World War I or World War II combined. Of course, it's not just a matter of Americans fighting Americans. But the doctors did a job on everybody they fixed. Anytime they operated on somebody, they may have got the bullet out. But in the process, gave the person the infection to kill him. And uh, the doctors, they, you know, they were always given an infection. We, we, uh, we think about washing your hands and, and being clean before you touch a wound and things of this nature. And, and yet when uh, the first people, just, you're just talking about a little over a century ago, started to uh, make statements that you ought to wash your hands and be clean. And, and they, they taught, told the doctors they thought that, that they were spreading disease with their dirty hands and all. Uh, they were actually mocked and belittled. The majority of the doctors, the man, they'd go cut on this person and, and then they go cut on the next person and, and they just passed uh, the bacteria and the infections and the disease. We're talking about a century and a half ago. Here's Moses telling the people to wash in running water. Water purifies itself as it runs. Here's Moses telling the people that when a person has any kind of an infection, to put him outside the camp and, and make him call unclean. And the priest would go out and inspect him on a regular basis and make sure that he was clean before he came in around the regular people. Uh, here's Moses telling them to wash their clothes and to bathe and to keep themselves clean in, in so many ways. The foods that they ate were, were the healthiest way to eat and the healthiest way to prepare it. Uh, the clean animals were the animals primarily that lived off vegetation. Uh, the animals that, that were unclean tended to be animals that devoured and ate other animals. Uh, most of us don't want to eat a dog or a cat today. 
the type of birds, the type of animals that were unclean to them, as uh, two broad categories, now you can break it down a little more, but as a general rule, those animals that, that ate other animals were the ones that they avoided, and the ones that lived off vegetation were the clean animals to them. Well, we today come along and, and we realize that uh, these are the cleaner animals, the ones that eat vegetation. Theirs is, is the one that the meat is better. Uh, isn't it interesting that uh, we don't want a lot to do with pork in our society? Look at all the negative things that doctors still say about pork. Uh, and, of course, we're probably developing a type of pork that's superior to what they've had in the past and all. But doctors even today tell you that it's hard to digest, that if you get pork, now you'll eat a rare piece of beef, but what about pork? Who's going to eat a rare piece of pork? We don't. Um, so the, it's interesting that we come along and here you've got something 3,500 years ago and it'll stand the test of a doctor today. When you read about uh, the uh, types of fish, shellfish, that they didn't eat, and we say, well, we eat that today, like we eat, we eat shrimp and oysters, etc. But if you're out there and you get some shrimp and oysters, what's the first thing you're going to do with it? Put it on ice because it deteriorates extremely fast. Now, where would Moses and those people have got any ice? And so the type of fish that they couldn't eat, we can eat because we know that it deteriorates very quickly and we get it on ice and we preserve it. And, but I'm saying given their environment with no refrigeration and no ice, those type of things that deteriorated very quickly, they were just simply to leave it alone. So the Bible's not a science book. But when it touches on it, if you've got the right, like Moses, what if he gave them a health code that was just like the Egyptians were following in that day? Well, you'd say, hey, Moses, I don't know where you got this, but you should, no way in the world you could have got that information from the creator of the universe. But the fact that that health code cannot be improved on today, and, and the fact that it is so superior to anything, is evidence that Moses was operating with some pretty sophisticated sources above and beyond the information of the people of that day. A sociologist ought to be able to look at those principles of life that are set forth in the Bible as to how we interact and relate to one another and ought to be able to say that, hey, this is the best way to live or to do things or anything of that nature. Well, that's exactly what we have. That uh, when you come to the Bible, if you had a way of life advocated that the sociologist through scientific studies has shown is simply an inadequate way to live, you would have an evidence against the inspiration. But we don't. The interesting thing is that whether it's the psychologist or the sociologist, that when they look at those principles, that we have something that actually works. You just simply cannot live in a healthier way from a psychological standpoint than the way you put forth in the scriptures. Uh, a book out called Your Erroneous Zones, What's his name? Wayne, uh, Wayne Dyer, Your Erroneous Zones. Uh, you know, have any of you read it? It uh, was a bestseller for several years. He made a lot of talk, talk shows. The man is an unbeliever and, and yet an outstanding psychiatrist. Uh, you know what he calls the worthless emotion that has put more people in mental hospitals than any other emotion? Guilt. Guilt. He says, guilt will destroy you. And that guilt is the number one factor that people go to mental wards. It's the number one factor they have brought. Guilt. 
Well, his answer is a little different than the Christian answer. He says the reason you feel guilty is because you believe it's wrong. Quit believing it's wrong, you won't feel guilty. So he gets disturbed at religious people. Quit telling his people that fornicating and homosexuality, etc., etc., is wrong because you're causing people to feel guilty. So he says it's a worthless emotion. Quit believing, it, believing it's wrong, and you won't feel guilty. But here's the problem. People can't quit believing it's wrong. That's interesting. When people steal, when they lie, when they cheat, when they're unfair, we have a sense of awe within us that nobody can explain. And here you, you see an event on the news about some guy in California that really got it socked to him in a court case where it was obvious he was in the right. And what happens? You become indignant. You just absolutely, you don't even know the fellow. But there is a sense of awe within you, and you become indignant. When we watched TV and saw uh, what happened in, in China, in Beijing, and all those students, they were killed and executed, we don't know those people from Adam. But we became very indignant and very sympathetic. That just seemed so wrong that uh, young people seemingly wanting no more than to be free and, and to be able to speak out and would be put to death like that. Uh, when we read about some murderer that's taken a life or somebody that's raped somebody, even though it wasn't anybody that you know, you become indignant. And you cry and you say, he should be killed. That's that sense of awe within you. The interesting thing is the Christian system that allows people to repent and to be forgiven and to do away with guilt and then to live in a certain way is actually mentally the healthiest that a person would be. In other words, I'm saying that I don't believe a Christian can be mentally sick unless there's something organically wrong. Now, you can have organic problems. Uh, for example, there are some, uh, some parts of schizophrenia that, that can definitely be uh, organic in nature. But for the most part, it's not. And, and Christianity is literally, from a mental standpoint, the healthiest way to live. So again, you would expect that, uh, if it's what it claims to be. You would expect the sociologist to say, hey, this type of group living and getting along and all that's advocated should be one that is right. You would expect the philosopher to say that this is a superior philosophy to hedonism or to the Stoic philosophy or the Epicurean philosophy. And this is what we have, the, the philosophy of loving other people and doing for others and treating them as you would have them treat you and all is a philosophy of life that, that we would put up there at the very top. All right. If it is true, you would expect it to interact with your own personal experience about personalities in life. And in other words, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Uh, if this way of life is right, you would expect it to actually work. You would expect to have inner identification with the material. Now, Mark, getting back to the question that you asked between about people that believe but have never uh, investigated manuscripts and history and things of this nature, well, they did have evidence. There was inner identification with those moral principles. It was in agreement with their personal experience. Uh, their own philosophy of life was such that, you know, they agreed with that type thing. And then not only that, although they didn't know Greek themselves or they hadn't studied the history or anything, they knew in their mind that, hey, we've got preachers who have gone to the seminaries and they have studied Greek.